Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 23 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Macho, the clinical education QA manager for the county. And joining me once again this month, our usual cast of characters. So going down my list, I see Dr. Ben Weston, System Medical Director. Good morning, Dr. Weston. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Dan, welcome. Hello. And our illustrious EMS Fellows, uh, Dr. Nico Arendovich. Dr. Arendovich, welcome. Good morning. And Dr. Brandon Drezic. Dr. Drezic, welcome. Hello, hello all. Excellent. Well, I, I appreciate everybody taking the time to join us today. Um, and for those of you that are listening uh, after the fact, uh, before we dive into our topic today, uh, as per usual, we will go through some updates. So, Dan, anything from the system? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. First and foremost, happy EMS week to all EMS providers locally in Milwaukee County and also to those who join us on this podcast from afar and around the world. It's important to recognize the outstanding work that is done in EMS and to recognize you all as highly trained providers that provide exceptional service. I, for one, am truly humbled to be part of this great system, and I do brag every chance I get about Milwaukee County EMS with the research we participate in, Just Culture, and our CEQA process, our training and education, and coming soon is more discussion on data analytics and how we can leverage some EMS data to improve the health of the communities that we do serve. Uh, and then finally, also, I wanted to recognize the events from the weekend uh, with yet again another mass shooting uh, things were certainly chaotic for a little while, but the Milwaukee Fire Department and other shared service agencies did a nice job managing uh, the scene and patient flow. So uh, kudos to them for handling that, that situation as well as they did. All right. Thanks, Dan. Some nice words there. Uh, and I think we all extend our appreciation for everything those uh, providers out in our county do for the residents. And again, a happy EMS week. Uh, from medical direction, Dr. Weston, any updates? All right. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, a couple quick updates here. Um, one on uh, the COVID front. As we see our county moving into the yellow or uh, medium category of community level, as we're seeing in many other parts of the country, um, our COVID numbers are increasing. So our numbered notice on COVID-19 does outline a dynamic approach to masking during patient encounters. So while a paper surgical mask was permissible in most patient encounters while we were in the green category, now that we're in yellow, and at times if we were to get higher, a uh, KN95, N95, or superior uh, respirator and uh, face mask is required for um, all patient encounters. So please take a look at that number notice and uh, keep track of where our CDC community level is. Uh, and then also happy EMS week to all of our providers in the Milwaukee County EMS system, uh, as well as the many other providers and other systems listening in for all the work that you do, uh, working day in and day out, running into danger to save lives and ultimately enhancing the health of our community uh, and the health of your community. So thank you for all you do and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Uh, now that everyone's had a chance to uh, hopefully uh, review the recent policy and guideline updates and take a listen to uh, our physician's wonderful job of kind of outlining some of those updates, uh, we're gonna go through a little bit of Q&A and answer some questions about some of the changes that were made. So with that being said, I will turn it over to Dr. Rendovich and Dr. Drazic. Thanks for joining us today for this month's episode of Push Dose CMS. 
Today, we're going to be going through the proverbial mailbag to answer some common questions that have come up over the last year, as well as changes to the guidelines, which we have. Yeah, we know a lot of things change as years go on, and it can be difficult to keep up with, um, especially when the things one year are in fashion and other years we kind of put them out the back door. In fashion? Is that a mass pants reference? Great example of those things that we once thought might be life-saving uh, and now have gone the direction of... Jinko jeans. Heck <laughs> of a throwback there. <laughs> Not only those things that change, right? Uh, tourniquets were in favor, then out of favor, back in favor, based on medical evidence that shows they are safe and effective. Uh, compression to ventilation ratios have wandered from 30 to 2, 15 to 2 to continuous. Cardiac arrest medications, uh, you know, those ones have been all over the place, but um, at present, we don't see any atropine or uh, bertillium for arrest anymore. And oxygen administration in STEMI, we initially thought it was really good, but then found out we were actually harming patients with it. So that went out the door. The point is, we try to practice with the best available evidence that we have access to. You'll see these changes all the time, and it can be vague as there's no one size fits all answer to everything. And though it can be frustrating, we're doing the best we can for the people that we take care of. So on behalf of us, as well as the citizens we take care of, thanks for your help in all of this. And honestly, if you have any questions about why we do certain things, we want to hear about it. Because the more you know about why you do something, the better. And in the famous words of government issue Joseph, knowing is half the battle. These references are on point today. Anyways. On to the mailbag. First letter we're gonna have here is from Jim Walters from Fox Point. Dear Push Dose EMS, we don't get a lot of patients who have mechanical circulatory support devices, but every time we see them, it can be terrifying. What's the idea behind this new guideline? Well, part of what we wanted to do here was give better guidance. Back in the day, there used to not be a lot of options when people had pretty severe heart failure. The concept of the LVAD or the left ventricular assist device was that it was going to be a bridge to transplantation. Nowadays, it's evolved into destination therapy. And I get that you're asking, where are they going? Well, they're going to be going over the rainbow bridge. As technology has advanced, we've started getting more tools implanted. RVADs, so right ventricular assist devices, which support the right side of the heart, Bivads, which have a pump on both sides, and though rare, some people are having total artificial hearts. And those total artificial hearts have pretty drastically different management. So we changed it because we wanted to stay as current with technology as we could while emphasizing, and I strictly say emphasizing, that the problem is usually not associated with the device, but something on the patient's side. And so you should focus on the patient while we give guidance to the subtle differences you'd need in evaluating these patients to get the same information you normally would get, such as vital signs. And in the off chance that these people, of course, are in cardiac arrest, which is a whole different bag of worms, they need to be managed differently as well. If you have a total artificial heart, probably not going to be doing CPR since there's not much to pump on. And if it's a VAD, there's a chance that you can dislodge it. So you're going to have to use some clinical judgment but it's worth really noting that CPR is not a contraindication for it. And so that's that letter. Thanks a lot. Our next letter is from Susie Gautam from Fort Valley, Georgia. Dear Push Dose EMS, 
I've always heard of it being re referred to as excited delirium. Now I see that it's delirium with agitated behavior. What's the difference? So the point of this change is to get away from politics and focus on medical care. Excited delirium itself is not really a recognized medical diagnosis. That is not a primary etiology, not the core explanation for anything in particular. That can be problematic, especially when we're primarily trying to focus on the medical care that's going to benefit the patient themselves. By shifting our terminology to a descriptor, we try to better capture our medical intent here. And what is that intent? It's identifying patients that are truly delirious and agitated to being a potential risk to themselves or others, a true life-threatening emergency. What we recognize is that certain patients need medical restraint, but we wanna ensure that patients who get sedation in this context do get it because of a true medical emergency. That means they're delirious to the point where they cannot be de-escalated by another means. And often they are experiencing a sympathetic surge, a true physiologic response that puts them at risk of, of multi-organ injury and potentially failure. So we're working through quality and education initiatives to ensure we're using sedation for agitation when appropriate and medically indicated. So again, focused on safety, focus on medical care and do what's right for the patient. Next up is a letter from Jonathan Jacobs from Cairo, Illinois. I believe it's actually pronounced Cairo. Thank you. Dear Push Dose EMS, I noticed that in the poisoning guideline, Glucagon was removed for beta blocker overdoses. What was the reason for that? This is actually a really great question. And there's quite a bit to unpack here, but we probably don't see these too often, or honestly, we don't catch them. And that's okay, because we'll usually recognize the outcomes, which is the hypotension, and that we're pretty good at managing. As an antidote, it's not the same dosing amount for frequency that we would have given the hypoglycemic patients that don't have an IV. Turns out, it's about five times greater than the amount. So when we would normally give these hypoglycemic patients that we don't have an IV a milligram of glucagon, we're talking about giving five milligrams. And the typical treatment would be to start an infusion of about five to 15 per hour. To top it all off, the data behind it is actually pretty limited and the benefits might only be transient. These cases should really be brought to the hospital relatively quickly and the management of the hypotensions per the shock guidelines that are here. Great question. Next letter we have is from Thor Gustafsson from Hammerfest, Norway. Dear Push Dose EMS, I've always been a guy who was taught that all trauma should have the exact ex same exam, the ABCs. Why the sudden change to Marshy? Marchy? Marchy? Well, I think this is pretty straightforward. And the crews I've been with are all doing this almost simultaneously, which speaks to just how well-oiled of a machine a good crew is. Just remember, if you decide to look for other guidance towards this Marchigal algorithm elsewhere, you're going to see that ours is slightly different here. Our goal is to focus on early life-saving interventions and differentiate it from medical arrests. Now, traditionally, we'd look at the ABCs. We'd look at the airway first because a lost airway is a dead person. And that's definitely true, but unless you're taking direct trauma to the airway, you typically lose its secondary to something else. So going through the Marchi algorithm, 
The first letter is M, which is for massive hemorrhage. It doesn't just remind us that bleeding control is top priority in trauma care. It also clarifies what kind of bleeding control we're talking about. Now, not all bleeding control is a priority. You know, for example, you can see someone spurting blood from their head, from their neck, from their legs, something from a ripped artery. Or you can see trickling blood from a skin tear or scrapes that even stopped bleeding before EMS arrived. But when we say massive hemorrhage, it gives a clear picture and means the same thing to pretty much everyone. Immediate, active, life-threatening bleeding that will kill the patient if not stopped. Around this time in your mind, this is where you're thinking about tourniquets and hemostatic dressings. After that is airway control. We know that one. If you have blood in your mouth, if you're spurting, if you're having a bad time moving air in and out of your lungs, that's a bad thing. And we know how to solve that. R is for respiratory support. Think of this as the old breathing. Keep in mind that overventilation can also do more harm than good. Ventilation provided with too much volume, speed, or force can increase pressure in the chest and reduce blood return to the heart. And this can, of course, have a negative effect on circulation, especially on trauma patients progressing towards shock. This is also where you want to start to consider those life-saving interventions of needle decompression. C is for circulation. We need to optimize the patient's circulation. This is fluids for that permissive hypotension or any other smaller bleeding control. And this is also in the arresting patient where we should consider pericardiocentesis or placing pelvic binders making sure that we can get adequate circulation is next in line. H is for head injury. This is where you assess for GCS and put in the consideration of spinal precautions such as C-collars and also pressure management based on head injuries. And E is for exposure and expedite. Look all over, see the, see the back of the patient, prevent hypothermia in these cases and manage the pain. And of course, GTFO from the area and get yourself to your trauma hospitals. That's, the, that's why we've changed the general algorithm here to, so we can have a clear differentiation between trauma and medical cases. Next letter is from Stephen with a, from Sacramento, California. Dear Push Dose EMS, I know we've been guided to start using more norepinephrine or levofed lately. Back in the day, they used to have that saying, levofed, leave them dead because it was so dangerous. What gives? Are we harming our patients? So we're finding the use of norepinephrine being highly effective, especially in our EMS systems. There are a few changes here. First, in a few guidelines, we're trying to make sure it gets considered earlier uh, when it can be very useful. Second, the dosing will be a little bit more aggressive and the titration intervals will be shortened. In terms of the earlier use of norepinephrine, we feel like we might be underutilizing it a little bit. When appropriate for causes such as septic or cardiogenic shock, this medication is life-saving and early use can really make a difference for a patient. I understand it can be a little gray because we're not necessarily emphasizing a really strict time cutoff, but think of it like this. If you started those fluids, they're going with pressure, and the patient is not responding or initially responds and then their pressure drops back off into shock, we want you to start the norepinephrine and be ready for it. Essentially, we're putting this critical care medication in your hands and the risks of prolonged shock are far greater than the alternative. The earlier shock gets addressed, the better the patient outcome. This means not kicking it down the line to the hospital, but starting it right there when needed.
For the dosing, our system has proven safety at this point. So the initial rates and the max rates will be a little bit higher now. And one of the great things about norepinephrine is how fast on, fast off it is. As long as you're checking vitals frequently, adjusting at those Q2 minute, every two minute intervals as needed, you should be able to treat quickly and adjust appropriately if that blood pressure shoots up or you need more. The next letter is from Jennifer Brunswick from Effingham, Illinois. Dear Push Dose EMS, we noticed that there was some explicit writing in the CPAP guideline about coaching being the key. What's up with that? Well, that's a great question. The wording is explicitly, quote, explain procedure and coach patient. Some patients will demonstrate anxiety with the procedure. Coaching is key. CPAP is going to be crucial for these asthmatics and COPD patients who look to be in pretty bad distress. Even moderate distress, it's going to be pretty helpful. Remember that in general, the idea of having CPAP is that it makes the breathing easier and allows the flow in and out of the lungs easier. Now, we've all felt short of breath at one point or another, but when that mask goes on, it's going to feel pretty claustrophobic. You're going to have to let them know that if they can work with it, it's going to get better. And particularly for those asthmatics and COPDs, remember, we consider these obstructive lung diseases. The biggest issue for them is they actually can't get the air out. It's not that they're having a hard time getting it in. They can't get it out. So the biggest issue is actually going to be exhaling. So part of their coaching is going to be needed that the part of their coaching is to remind them that they'll need to breathe out a little bit more. The next letter is from Carol Baskins from Besker County, Texas. Dear Push Dose CMS, we notice you're asking us to slow down post-ROSC transport. Isn't transport important? What about those ECGs? What about STEMIs in these post-arrest patients? Why aren't we getting that done first? Isn't time hard? So my guess is that if you've transported a patient with ROSC, you've probably also had one who's lost pulses on the way to the hospital. And if you think of those events, my bet is that many of you out there have been in the circumstances where you've had pulses just until that moment you got the patient back in the ambulance. Or worse, you had a good pulse in the ambulance, you transfer the patient over to the ED staff, at which point the nurse says, patient no longer has pulses, maybe while shooting you a disappointed glance. Truly, this is not a rare occurrence, and it's not just a coincidence. These post-arrest patients are very sick. They're ready to decompensate at any moment. Even small actions or movements can alter their hemodynamics or throw them into an unstable heart rhythm. The point of the change for our post-ROSC transport guideline is to stabilize before you move or touch the patient. That is, before you move them, before that last dose of epinephrine wears off, to start the interventions that are going to protect the ROSC you just worked so hard to achieve. Remember that shift to stay in play uh, CPR rather than rushing every PND to the hospital? Well, we did that because we recognized patients actually did better if we delivered this care in the field. Similarly here, there is no point in being overly hasty in our post-ROSC transportation 
if it means sacrificing the first steps in critical care stabilization that can be done right there in the streets. Essentially, we're trying to make this post-Rust guideline better prioritized. First, stabilize the patient. Do what you can to prevent them from crashing. That means maximizing oxygenation and ventilation, reassessing your vitals, treating hypotension with fluids and early norepinephrine before it becomes a bigger problem. Again, we wanna emphasize that this should be done before you jostle the patient around, try and do things, or they go through those periods of transition where you are not able to actively monitor them. Second, before you move the patient, make sure you reassess vitals. After the you move the patient, make sure to reassess vitals. Once again, treat that hypotension, treat that cardiogenic shock early. If they're dipping at the point you get them to the ambulance, you're probably reaching for that norepinephrine. And at some point, a little bit further down the line, after you're set to go or maybe in route, get that post-ROSC ECG. We've moved that ECG a little bit later in the guideline workflow. The ECG is important, but secondary to stabilizing the patient. Additionally, waiting a few moments post-ROSC before capturing your 12 lead it's a better picture of the underlying heart activity rather than just reflecting the injury during the cardiac arrest period itself. That is an ECG that is abnormal from the immediate cardiac arrest period is less helpful than one that captures an underlying STEMI or arrhythmia. If you're interested in a little bit more detail, recommend looking back on last month's episode of Pushed OCMS episode 22, Presser Your Luck. Thanks for that question. Next letter is from Eddie Valiant from Los Angeles, California. Dear Push Dose EMS, I noticed the dose of medazolam concentration change, but there was no indication of the dosing. What's up with that? This one's pretty simple. The medication concentration is changing, but the dosing and the indications were going to remain the same. Historically, we've had them at these one-to-one -one ratios of either two milligrams per two mLs or five milligrams to five mLs. And our new concentration is going to be five milligrams to one mL, so a five-to-one ratio. You'll find the dose to be a bit stronger than previous, so you'll need to use a little bit less medication volume overall. So make sure you double-check what you have verify your dosing and, and do that medication cross-check to prevent those errors and pay extra attention while it changes. This contrast, this concentration is going to also make it easier to use the intranasal dosing. Previously, one of the plans was to squeeze about four cc's into someone's nose, which not only was it impractical, as you could watch it drip right out, it just didn't really work. Now it's a far more realistic 0.8 cc's for an adult, and you only need to stick it in one nostril. And it's worth remembering that when it comes to the seizure management using IM midazolam, it is no different than IV. So use the fastest route available, whether it's IM or IN. Keep, a, keep an eye out for this because may, these medication changes are going to be a little difficult to comprehend. So just make sure you're paying very close attention. Thanks for your attention this month. Thanks for your questions. And please feel free to reach out at any time. Back to you, Jeff.
Docs, thank you so much. Uh, some great information and thanks for taking the time out to answer some of those questions that came in. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everyone else who was able to join on the panel. And thanks to all of you for taking the time out to listen to us uh, this month. Happy EMS week once again. And as always, if you do have any questions, comments, things that you have a burning desire to get answered by our physician team, please send us an email, emseducation at milwaukeecountywi.gov, and we will certainly incorporate that the best that we can. Thanks once again. Stay safe. We'll see you next month.